Today's podcast is brought to you by Nuveen. Nuveen has provided investment excellence for 125 years. A lot has changed, but one thing remains constant. Including different types of durable income in portfolios can help investors meet their goals with expertise across income and alternatives. Nuveen continues to expand its capabilities while maintaining its legacy as a leading investment manager. Visit nuveen.com to learn more. Investing involves risk. Loss of principal is possible. Today's show is sponsored by Kaplan Schweizer. The study material, education material that I myself leaned on to get me through the first, second, and yes, not to brag, the third exam as well. I did, I did fail level two, but in my defense, I was not even in the industry. Very difficult, uh, difficult exam. And part two, my mom passed, not to make this too more of it, but like three weeks after I took the test. So mentally, I was not, not in the greatest headspace to be taking that exam. So I, I think I have passed. some excuses. Thank you. The first one I took was December. So it used to be you can only take the test in June. Then they added level one in December. And so I took level one in December, but they did not have it in Grand Rapids anywhere. So I had to go to Chicago and took it at the McCormick place. And it was like 3,000 people taking it. And a huge, it's, it's gigantic. Wild. It's, a, it's a very bizarre process. I took level two, the one that I failed at the Javits Center. And you're right. It's just rows and rows and rows of future analysts of America. So this is why you need Kaplan Schweizer. So you're prepared for this test. Because I saw people like cramming for the test before the level one. And I'm thinking, if you don't know it now, after six months of studying, <laughs> I don't think any sort of cramming is going to help. That's why you need the study guides. So you can be prepared and go to bed the night before the test, ready to go, right? Not having to worry. Take all the practice tests you need. Uh, check out the link in our show notes for schweizer.com for more. Welcome to Animal Spirits, a show about markets, life, and investing. Join Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson as they talk about what they're reading, writing, and watching. All opinions expressed by Michael and Ben are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Welcome to Animal Spirits with Michael and Ben. We're going to start off today's show with a quick eulogy of one of the greatest investors of all time, one of the wisest people uh, in modern history. That is, of course, the late Charlie Munger. When I was trying to figure out finance and investing, because I came out of school not knowing anything, I just read every book I could get my hands on. I think you kind of did something similar. And I think my dad was asking around for some of his colleagues, like, what should I get my son to read? Because he's really into this stuff. And in like 2005, when this came out, he got me the Poor Charlie's Almanac, which is just a collection of Munger's speeches over the years and people telling stories about him. It almost reads like a eulogy uh, when it came out. I think there's a new version coming out, but I highly recommend that book. And the other the other one is Damn Right by Janet Lowe. Did you ever read that one? I did. It's like a bag. It's both are very good. But Poor Charlie's Almanac is excellent because it's got all of his best speeches and best quotes and stories. And you and I actually have a signed copy because of someone who listens to this podcast. Oh, that's how it happened? I wasn't yeah. sure where it came from. You and Josh and I all got a signed copy from Charlie Munger because it was someone who was somehow related. I can't remember exactly what it was, but someone was, who was a listener to this podcast was nice enough to reach out and said, hey, I have an in with Charlie Munger. I can get you guys a signed copy. And so we have a signed Very copy cool. of the book. 
Yes. Uh, was Dan was Dan Wright the the Trent Griffin one? Nope. Dan Wright was the Janet Lowe one. Trent Griffin wrote another Charlie Munger one, which was great, which is like just a collection of his quotes and wisdom. I read both of those because Charlie Munger was a chapter in my book, Big Mistakes, and I think I'm pretty sure the 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 example I used of his big mistake was blue chip stamps. I think that's what it was, but I can't remember 100%. Anyway, be that as it may, I don't know why I said be that as it may. Weird transition. Sorry about that. That's podcasting. That's podcasting. That was, that was bad, passing. Pe- bad people podcasting. Do, people, always, people always tell us the things that we say too much, as, but that's that's what you do in podcasting. You have to have those kind of verbal crutches. Yeah. This is, this is how we move on. Somebody told me something that you said frequently. Gosh darn it, what was it? I can't remember. I, get, I was like, I get it a lot. Guess what? It's, it happens. I'm not worried about it. I say so too much. The word so, like as a transition. I've I been told my, I say. I, I've been told I say like too often. Guess what? That's the way I talk. I don't care. There was you're a lot of artic- change, you're not going to change me now. <laughs> there was a lot of articles and written and actually interviews. Uh, so, see, I just did it. I'm gonna. Right, I'm gonna. I'm gonna not highlight every time I, I use that word. Um, there was a podcast that we've mentioned a couple of times. The Acquired Guys had Charlie Munger on. This is this is probably five six weeks ago. John Collison on Invest Like the Best, on the Invest Like the Best feed, did an interview with him. I have not listened to that yet. I'm going to. But Becky Quick, uh, Becky has done a lot of interviews over the years with both him and Warren Buffett. And I was reading the transcript. I didn't see it because it was on TV, but I didn't get a chance to see it. The, the transcript is available. We'll share that in the show notes. And this really surprised me. Charlie said, uh, I could have done a lot better if I had been a little smarter, a little quicker. Now, this interview was, I think it was like a couple of weeks ago. Becky says, what are you talking about? You've had success in everything you've done in life. What would you like to do differently? He said, well, no, but I might have had multiple trillions instead of multiple billions. Becky says, do you sit around thinking about this? What would you have done differently? Charlie says, yes, I do think about it. I think about it. I think about what I nearly missed by being just not quite smart enough or hardworking enough. And then there's a break in the interview and Becky says, uh, what would you have changed if you can go back and look at the last hundred years? Well, I'd go back and make some, uh, of course, there'd be a cinch to go back and do it knowing what was going to happen now. I would be the richest man on earth. What did you miss? Was there something that you zigged where you could have zagged? And Charlie says, well, I would have started earlier for one thing, and I would have compounded longer, and I would have compounded better. And this was really felt odd for me to read. Um, One of his most famous sayings is, the world is not driven by greed. It's driven by envy. And a man who, I don't know what his net worth was when he died. It was a three billion or four, whatever it was. Two or three billion, something like that. Yeah. Plenty of money. I don't know if anybody ever asked him this. Was he envious of Warren? And was he secretly bitter? Because in this interview, he's talking about money, not, not necessarily not having enough of it, but I just read what he said. But, you know, he could have had multiple trillions. Uh, and it said it's something he thinks about. Do you think that he was secretly, I don't know if resentful is the right word, but envious that Warren, who was worth $100 billion, had so much more than he did? That's possible. I never, I never really thought about that either. I bet he would have said no, but that would have been interesting to hear him with some truth serum. Now, how about this? The the, the, the Obviously, uh, Charlie died just shy of his 100th birthday. Warren is, I think, 95 or 96, a couple of years behind. It's easy to say now, listen, I have $4 billion. What's the difference? $4 billion, 100 billion, it's the same number. But what about when 
Charlie had 40 million and Warren had 3 billion. Right? Like I, I do wonder uh, if, if he was secretly, if there was any resentment over the years and I could be way off. I'm not trying to besmirch the man. I'm just, it's just something that, that caught my eye. I hope not. I, it's also, I think important to recognize that we put these people on a pedestal who have like been a successful businessmen and investors and such, but they, these people aren't also perfect either. And they, they don't, they don't have it all figured out. Life. You mean? Yes. Yeah. The whole, the whole thing. There's, Snowball. Yeah. There's parts of, of everyone's, every successful person's life. If you read anything, the Steve Jobs biography or the Warren Buffett biography, there's parts of their life where these people are not perfect. And the, their personal life is obviously, if you become a billionaire, you have to sacrifice a lot of other things in your life. And I think it's important to recognize that for the people that, that put these people on a pedestal that yes, they have a lot of wisdom and they made a lot of money, but it's not always, there's, there's trade-offs there for that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a, a normal person would say to themselves, why keep going? Why in your nineties are you still obsessed with the, with the chase and the hunt? And maybe at that point it was more intellectual than anything. It's stimulative and it probably wasn't necessarily about the money, but yeah, these people are far from perfect. If you read the book Snowball, which was, I think, my, my favorite Warren Buffett biography that I've read, his personal life was uh, a disaster. Is that fair? Yeah, not, not great. I, mean, I, I read a- Not a great father, had literally uh, multiple marriages. I heard a speech from a guy one time who talked about the fact that he was an index investor his whole life. And he said he watched a lot of people who- who did outperform and they maybe outperformed the market by like a hundred basis points a year or whatever for their career and how they put 70, 80, 90 hours of work in per week to do that. And he said, there were times when I was jealous of that, but being an index investor and not putting all my time and energy into trying to beat the market or have these crazy goals and make a lot of money allowed me to coach my kids softball teams and soccer teams. And I actually had a life and that trade-off was worth it to me. I just want to clarify one thing I just said. I didn't mean multiple marriages because a lot of people have multiple marriages. He had multiple wives at the same time. And one of them was, Partners, you know, yes. his, yeah, one of them was, was his family partner, I guess, for lack of a better, his, his actual wife who was raising the kids. And the other was his life partner, the one that he really loved. I don't, you know, whatever, which was odd. The point odd. is even like, even like the smartest people in the world don't have it all figured out. Yeah. Uh, one of the did things you read, that- Did you read the Jason Zweig piece about Munger? I thought this was one of the best thing I thought that came out of a lot of the stories is how much of his personal success he he said was partly luck. based on luck. And yeah. he said that when he was a young boy, it was him and a girl and the, a dog with rabies came down and bit the girl, not him. And she, yeah. she and he's like, that could have been me. And it wasn't. And, and like, I love the fact that he looked at that side of things. Like there, there's these other forks in the road where things could have gone a lot worse. And I think a lot of successful people don't have that. Luck is not black or white where people attribute their success to luck and it's like false humility. I don't think that's what this was because Charlie knew how brilliant he was, right? Now, two things can be true. You can be brilliant. And if you drop Charlie Munger into the United States at any period of modern times, he most likely would have been a very wealthy man. However, there are forks in the road where luck, where you get lucky, not because of your, of your intelligence, but because in this case, he didn't get bitten by the dog. Drop the two of us in like the 1600s. And uh, I don't think our podcasting skills would take us very far. No, my back would have blown. I was not, I'm not fit for the, for the fields. Uh, one, of the things, one of the things that, that Charlie Munger said that I thought that really made me think over the weekend was he was talking about how he still lives in the same house, you know, 70 years later and how, how people go wrong by having too big of a house. 
and you can't raise normal kids in a large house, I think was the gist of it. It's really hard to raise like well-adjusted kids living in giant houses. And uh, I was looking at a couple of houses over the weekend. To be fair, I think Munger owned multiple properties. I'm sure I, I think some of, some of this is some oh, of this totally. is about rich people who pretend like they're poor. I think that, that I no, think that's I don't, a, they're not pretending they're poor. But well, I, I made a joke a couple of years ago, like, yeah, Warren Buffett's lived in the same house in Omaha, but he carved out like a 14,000 square foot basement that nobody well, sees. Well, do, do, do you remember in Snowball, they said Buffett built a racquetball court in his house. So he had a plenty of room in that house in Omaha that he's well, lived and in Well, he, he had a house in California. Oh yeah, they, these guys I mean, they had spent plenty, a lot of time there. But of anyway, properties. but I was but I was thinking about the real estate thing because I was looking at houses over the weekend, just as we do on Zillow. And there's a couple of homes in my neighborhood that are like just you know a dumb amount of money. But I'm I'm looking at them like, yeah, that would be be really nice to have that house. It would be really nice to be able to host a hundred people, not that I know or want to host a hundred people, but to live on the water to to have a nice house would be very very nice. And then you know obviously there's the flip side of that, which is. Well, living in that house, people, and again, not that I could afford these houses, but living in the in houses like this, people think of you in a certain way, right? For better and for worse. True. Um, it's expensive as hell to maintain, right? Like whatever, $50,000 property taxes or whatever it is are, are no fun. The $19,000 mortgage payment is no fun. And so, yeah, you probably get an ego boost and it's probably really exciting. And uh, anyway, I, I was just thinking about that. I thought that was... That was a wise thing. That even if even it's even if it's like not one hundred percent genuine. Listen, he they did legitimately live in the same houses for multiple decades. That's pretty f-ing rare for somebody yes. with that much money. Yes. Even if they even if they did have vacation homes. All right. Anything else to say about the late great Charlie Munger? No, I'm just recommending Poor Charlie's Almanac for anyone who hasn't read it yet. Totally worth it. And I think there's a new a new version coming out. Right? Is that the story? Yes. There's a new version coming out. All right. Uh, Ben's take of the week. The Fed doesn't matter as much as people think. All right. Well, that's not Ben's take of the week. No offense. That's David Kelly's take. Okay. I was, I mean, I was literally the title of our podcast was the Fed doesn't matter as much as you think it does. So, I told I'm you, sorry, I was you already, can't, you can't say that's Ben's take, you can't I, say that's Ben's take of the week. I'm so, I'm just sorry. Now go okay. ahead. I, we had David Kelly on the show. What was it? Six months ago or nine, whatever. It was and in March. Was, it was in March. I was agreeing with a lot of what he said then. And I was agreeing with a lot of what he said now. I'm just I'm just putting it out there. David Kelly and I were on the same uh, mental wavelength. <laughs> wavelength. I was I was I was writing this this post already. So I put this on Twitter. This is this is the inflation for the U.S., Germany, U.K., France, Italy, and Canada. Look at how this curve goes. All the inflations for these developed economies goes up at the same time. They all come down at the same time. They got higher in some places too. U.K. was 11 at the peak. Italy was 12.6 percent at the peak, and it's now 1.8. But the thing is, the path was all exactly the same. Okay. So what's your take? Well, so people want to blame all of the inflation on the Fed and the government spending. And it'd be ridiculous to say it didn't have any bearing on it. But look at this other chart from the decomposition of excess core PCE inflation. And look at how much they they attribute to supply chains. Yeah. I think the supply chain weird pandemic stuff that happened had a way bigger impact than most people are willing to admit, especially in the Fed. I, I think the fiscal policy had way more impact than the Fed. Now, obviously, the Fed could have acted sooner, but if even if the Fed did act sooner, what would it have done? Slowed the housing market a little quicker? We've already seen that the Fed raising rates hasn't had that big of an impact. So, yes, for optics-wise, the Fed should have acted sooner, but what if it was just most of this stuff, I don't know, 80% of it was supply chains and the pandemic was weird and didn't matter what the Fed did? Well, can we agree that 0% inflation, I'm sorry, 0% interest rates does some very weird things to the economy and 0% interest rates are probably not a healthy thing? 
Inflation is not one of them. I don't think 0% interest rates causes yes, inflation because exactly. it was at zero forever. Uh, I will say that them buying $20 billion worth of mortgage bonds in 2022 still definitely impacted the housing market in not so great ways. So I, I agree with you there. I do think that- and if you got one of those 3% mortgages because of it, that's another luck thing for you. Yeah, true. I do think that the supply chain things um, are a huge piece of the pie. You, well, you it was it was not only supply problems, but then the government handed money to people, and then we had a demand like all the corporations. It was, and, it, was a, it was a perfect storm. Yeah, it was supply and then pent up demand because the corporations and the manufacturers all thought, well, like every other recession, people are going to pull back, and that's not what happened so, because so the government so filled the hole. So the fact that global inflation is falling at the same time tells you that this was mostly global supply chain issues. Yes. I don't think you, you're really going to blame the rest of the globe for having inflation that went up and down the same as the U.S. all in the Fed and the U.S. government for spending money. There's no way. Well, you, you could say that the there was U.S. all types of different fiscal monetary responses across, around the globe. That's true. What's also true is that the U.S. is the world's superpower, economically speaking, and we can both export and import inflation. And we have a big impact on all of these other companies, uh, countries. Yeah, but the 2010s, the U.S. was booming and the rest of the world was falling behind. So we didn't like lift them up at the same time. And the other thing is everyone wants to say the 2010s bull market was all because of low interest rates. And again, low interest rates had an impact, but then why didn't we have a huge bull market in Europe or Japan? Because they right. had even lower interest rates than right. us. That, all I'm saying right. is the Fed right. doesn't matter nearly as much as some people would like to believe. All right. Fact. That's last fact. week, Last week, we said we're done with the sentiment <laughs> stuff for the economy. Okay. but Just when we this, thought they were done. We were done. Piece, they pulled us back in. This piece from the FT... I thought was just, this, this, is, this is the best part. So he said, I know what you're thinking. Inflation explains all of this, the sentiment stuff. People really hate rising prices and are reminded them every time they buy something. This is the Michael Batnick take, okay? Inflation salience drowns out more distant or tangible, intangible gains. It's certainly a good theory, but countries around the world have faced steep inflation, many steeper than the U.S. Presumably their consumers are also much more pessimistic than one would expect. Well, no, actually. So they looked at this, this sentiment versus data in the U.S., France, Germany, and the U.K., and the only place that has a gap between what you'd expect based on the data and the actual sentiment is the U.S. So everywhere in the U.K., you'd expect sentiment to be bad because their economy's been bad. Same in France and Germany. But the U.S. has outperformed these other places. We've had lower inflation and higher growth. So you would expect sentiment would actually be better in the U.S., but it's worse. So how do you – this is like the – to me, this is the opposite of American exceptionalism. This is – I don't know what this is really, but there's something unique about the U.S. that we feel entitled to feel as angry as the other countries, and they have a way worse experience than we do. Like, things are worse for them than they are for us. Here's a counterpoint. The blue line that we're looking at, what is this showing you? This is showing economic indicators? Okay. Yes. France, Germany, and the U.K. are all underperforming us pretty dramatically. Yes. It's possible that if the blue line in the U.K. was where it is in the United States— that the way that consumer confidence would still be where it is. So it's it's hard to say. But look at the lines track pretty closely. No, before. I understand. I understand. I'm just saying if the blue lines in the other countries were as well as were as high as it is here, it's possible that the red lines would that the red line would cause a gap. We don't know. Fair. So I have so, I have another so, but, theory. But what do you so what is your theory for what's causing the gap All right, here? So here's here's the, the other piece I want to read. I mean, we're doing this again. What's no, America, the theory, no, specifically, what's the theory that's driving the differences between the United States and the rest of the world in terms of feelings? I think a certain percentage of the American population is 
more vulnerable to propaganda and negativity bias, and I think COVID made that worse. I think people, think about, now this isn't everyone, because every time we talk about the economy being strong, people will say, listen, my situation is bad, or these people's situation is bad. Listen, I have people in my own extended family who are going through not great financial situations right now and could be better. So like, just because you give us a few examples of people who are hurting, there's, that's always the case. When the economy is bad, there's gonna be people doing good. When the economy is good, there's gonna be people doing bad. But the economy as a whole has been relatively strong. And so they, and so I think- Are you blaming our media, our social media? What I is think exactly? that there is a group of the population who is uniquely vulnerable to negative media and to social media. And I think the propaganda, think how many people do you know that have political views that, that believe stuff that is just so far out of left field? You're telling me that those people, those same people have rational views on the economy? People that believe the earth is flat and that all this other weird political stuff, you think those people have rational views about the economy? And I think Americans, for some reason, are uniquely vulnerable to that kind of negativity bias. A certain percentage of the population, not everyone. Listen to this. Americans are consistently wrong in negative direction on almost every measure we polled. By huge margins, they believe inflation is still rising. It's not, it's falling. That it has outstripped wage growth, wages have outpaced prices, and that they have become less wealthy when in fact they become more wealthy. I think there's certain people who have been, who their brains, the internet has broken and I think will believe whatever they want to believe. I, I think agree with that. 30% of the population that has a, their brain broken by the internet. So, but, but other countries have the internet and other countries have far left and far right leaning wings of, in media. You just think that Americans are uniquely susceptible to those, to that propaganda. I think it's possible. Don't you think people in other countries are more like cynical or. So are you saying that we're, we're, we're just, we're very dumb is dumb, dumb might not be the right word, but that's going to be, that's going to come off as really bad. Think about like the difference between sense of humor in different countries. Like the Europeans have a different kind of sense of humor than us. And I feel like that that's kind of my way to explain. I, I think that there's, listen, we have more people than a lot of like European countries. And I do think that Americans, a certain percentage of the population has had their brain kind of broken by the media and, and social media. And that, that sounds like a bad thing to say, but I think it's true. I think some people. So that, I think there's like a third of the people that have that negativity bias Maybe a third of the people really are in a bad place because they missed out on the housing market or they're renting or their inflation is hurting them. And then the other 40% of people are doing just fine and doing okay. Is that fair? I think so. I don't know. Again, that that's a, a theory that's like, that's my point is it's buckets. It's not, because when we say the economy is strong, it's not like it's strong for everyone because people always tell us the it opposite. Never is. When, it never is. When, and then when people say, no, this the economy is weak, it's like, of course it's not weak. It's So I think it's, it's a little bit both, but I think this, I think the negativity part is, I think that's part of it. Uh, and now we'll uh, Wells Fargo, Wells Fargo CEO, Carl Cantoni tweeted this. I didn't see the context. Uh, Charlie Scharf says U.S. consumer and businesses are very strong. Again, not for every, not every Always. business, not every consumer, but. Okay. Get, getting back to my negativity thing. Did you see this tweet? This is from Heisenberg on Twitter. Who the f*** is this guy? I, it looks like an AI to me. But it oh, talks it? about, someone told me it's real. I said, there's no way this is real. So it's this guy and it takes all of his thumbnails from YouTube. And this, this YouTube channel has 200,000 subscribers. Each of these videos has tens of thousands of views. And he talks about how it's a nation in free fall and chaos begins Monday and hell is coming and the major economy is breaking. And every single video is fire with a crazy uh, title to it. And this guy's got 200,000 YouTube subscribers. 
And again, if this looks like it could be AI. And I, maybe in the future, all this stuff will be AI. It'll be just doom scrolling nonstop for AI. But just let's just admit that like the negativity stuff, that's a real thing. For, for certain people can just get down that rabbit hole and will never get out of it. I'm tired of talking about this. All right. Here's the outlay, outrage inflation. <laughs> just, outrage. Just, just, I don't want to, I just don't want to highlight like negativity all the time. I agree. Right. We know that this is a thing and it's always been a thing and it always will be a thing. People are attracted to fear. It is what it is. We're not going to change it. Yeah. But my point is, I think it's gotten worse, unfortunately. Well, it's not getting better. So, okay. So here, I want to, I want to defend my honor a little bit because a certain <laughs> CNBC contributor who will not be named sent a message to Josh saying, hey, my warning signals are flashing yellow. <laughs> this is hilarious. Because Ben Carlson is dunking on the bears on Twitter. And I would like to uh, defend my honor here on this because I don't think I'm a contrarian indicator. I think that there is a difference between doomers, and these are the negativity people I'm talking about, and bears. I'm perfectly happy hearing a legitimate, rational, bearish argument for people that like get bearish on occasion, but I can't stand the doomers. And the doomers are my, my sworn enemy. I, I can't stand the, the people who try to prey on people's fears all the time. Yes. Those are the people that I'm dunking on. Mm-hmm. I, if you have like, bear, like, it's okay to have a balanced take that like, this could be good. This could be bad. I'm bearish right now, but you know, I can't stand the doomers and that's what, so that's why I'm not, Ben Carlson is not a contrarian indicator. I'm, is that we'll fair? Say. We'll okay. see. We'll see. This person said that Ben's been feeling, he's been feeling himself. It's been pretty vocal. <laughs> been pretty vocal. Is this the Ben Carlson top? We'll see. All right. Uh, fair. I have some, I'm saving the stats for later, but I have some stats on this for like what this year in the stock market means for later. We'll, we'll save that for our Michael Batnick's 10 predictions for 2024 podcast. You're going to do it again, right? Absolutely. Okay. All right. This was, this was a headline that people got really angry at, but I thought the, the meat of the piece was actually decent. So Annie Lowry for the Atlantic wrote inflation is your fault. And people got really mad at that. That that's like the outrage headline, right? People know if you, if you, print the right headline. You're going to get some outrage. But she says, uh, people have a lot more money on hand. More broadly, they seem to be less likely to change their purchasing habits in response to price shifts, even when budgets are leaner. A raft of studies have found that American consumers have become less price sensitive in recent decades. Households are using fewer coupons. Remember people used to clip coupons all the time? People My are spending less. a huge coupon guy. I'm surprised that hasn't become a thing with inflation that like, there's not like all these coupons. Maybe there are coupon groups. People are spending less ben, time mulling over what to buy you're, when you're, they're shopping. Your out of touchness is showing. Of course, there are coupons. I'm just, I'm just teasing. Uh, why? Maybe because although prices of consumer goods are higher than they were a few years back, they're still much, much more affordable than they were a few decades ago, thanks to globalized trade and manufacturing advances. So her whole point was, I think something we've talked about that, uh, obviously the headline, take the headline aside that it, inflation is not consumers' fault by any means. People are still not really changing their habits, which I think is a little surprising. I don't. You don't change your habit if you still have a job. You just save less. And maybe you go into more debt. Yeah, I guess that's true. It, it, it's, it's just funny that I think in the past- unless you're, did- really, unless you're really hurting, you're not saying to your spouse, honey, we're not going out for dinner on Saturday night. We, uh, prices are too high. Now, are there people that are changing their habits? Of course there are, right? Of course there are. I'm just saying people in the aggregate that shows up in the data- are not changing their habits because you don't want to. You don't want to go backwards. You don't want your lifestyle to go in reverse. 
Now, if we get a recession, people will change their habits. But absent that, rising prices don't apparently cause people to change their behavior in a vacuum. But if we get a recession and the unemployment rate goes from 4% to 7%, let's say, that's 3% of the workforce, there's still 90% plus people who are like, are those people going to change their habits? Or just the people who lose their jobs? Just because you don't lose your job doesn't mean that, the, that you don't feel it. Maybe you don't get as maybe you don't get a raise that you were counting on, True. right? Like maybe you get more anxious that you might be next. So just because you don't lose your job doesn't mean that you don't change your behavior. I also think credit card debt is just going to explode in that instance if that happens. If like wage growth falls off a cliff and really slows. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. All right, here's some good news from the Wall Street Journal: prices for long-lasting items known as durable goods. Uh, I, I really don't know. So durable goods is just stuff that you make that doesn't go bad. Durable goods are refrigerators and yeah. washing machines. Have fallen on a year-over-year basis for five straight months. In October, they were down 2.6% from their peak. This is pretty good. So they show year-over-year changes from October for selected categories, recreational goods, household goods, and appliances. There you go, appliances, motor vehicle parts. So we're seeing some deflation and stuff like this. I think this is, so this is, this is the supply chain stuff getting better, right? Yeah. And here's more in that vein. Uh, uh, car dealership guy uh, tweeted, biggest drop price drop since August. So fun fact, Porsche Cayenne prices have dropped over 10% since August, more than any other luxury vehicle. And it says price drop refers to the actual transaction price, not a change or reduction. I'm surprised how many of those I see on the road. The Porsche Cayenne? That's yeah. the sedan, right? No, Porsche Cayenne is the SUV. What's the sedan? Oh, the... Panamera? Something. It looks The Cayenne is the truck, right? The, the four-door Porsche looks a little weird. Porsche? Do, you, like do we it. say Porsche? We're not saying it right? I like it. say Porsche? I am a Porsche. I say Porsche, sorry. Okay. Not sorry. I, I, but I, I, it's, so the Cayenne is 70, what, 67 still? I see but it was, but it went, on the road. But it went from 75 to 67. That's a 10% price drop. That's a lot of money. That's, that's good news. So we got my wife re-upped her lease on her Hyundai Palisade. She got a new one two or three weeks ago. And when we got the first one, I think we got, we got it a little early because they said, hey, you got some equity, come take a look at it. And so we, we turned it in early. Two years ago, they had two of them on the lot. This time, the whole lot was full. So the, 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 that was a good supply chain indicator for me. There's more cars on the lots now. What else is in here? The, I don't even know a lot of these cars. What's the Audi e-tron S? That's that's, that was $97,000. That must be their EV. You know, th this is my problem with the electric vehicles. I'm all for saving the world and all, but the electrical vehicles are still too expensive in my mind. They'll come down, no? I think Tesla's probably going to bring the Oh, you saw the Cybertruck videos? God, what an ugly car. <laughs> Just heinous. Just absolutely heinous. I want to almost take a contrarian picture and say it looks good because everyone says they hate it. I mean, let's be honest, though. A lot of tech bros are going to buy that, buy that just to show off. Don't you? Like, people are still going to buy that thing. Absolutely. Listen, I, I don't like to be too judgmental, but I'm sorry. If I, if I see somebody driving a Cybertruck, I'm just being honest. I'm going to judge them. I think that's fair. It, I mean, it looks like something Sylvester Stallone would have driven in Demolition Man. Oh, it's a great call. Right? It's, like a a great it's like a 1990s version of what a future car should look like. What was Wesley Slipes' name in that movie? Cyrus? <sighs> Didn't so, he, yeah. Didn't he have the blonde streaks? What a, was that peak Wesley Snipes? Pretty close. 
You know what his downfall was? He didn't pay his taxes. He needed a better financial advisor. He needed a better CPA. He was, he was, uh, he was him before him was a thing. Yeah. Oh, Simon, Simon Phoenix. That's a great bad guy name. Total 90s movie. Sandra Bullock, Bull- early, early Sandra Bullock. All right. So I think 2023 is a great, uh, what am I trying to say? Reminder. Yeah, it's a great reminder that you. this is why you don't invest on headlines. Because if you think about what we've gone through to get in, the market is 4 or 5% from all-time highs now. Actually, actually alert. Our beautiful Dow Jones Industrial Average total return. Oh, yeah. All-time highs. Is it from total returns? Yeah, I, was, I wasn't even using total. We're back. Really? We did it. All-time all right. highs. So, I mean, two wars, 40-year high inflation. By the way, talking about negativity selling, Shame on us. We're 33 minutes into the podcast and I haven't even mentioned the fact that those beautiful industrials, all 30 of them, total return basis, all-time high. Pretty incredible. We're back. All right. Now I have to look at the S&P. So I have these charts in the doc. So Ben, the the S&P 500 is uh, within spitting distance, I believe is the correct nomenclature here. Is that what we call it? Yep. Stones throw spitting distance, that kind of thing. We're right there. How far away? So, how far away? I don't know. Percent or two? Oh, 1.8% as of this morning. And we're recording on Tuesday. Think about think about all of the things that, all of the uh, worries in the proverbial wall that we've climbed this year. From inflation to interest rate hikes to banks to the potential credit crunch that ever came to leading economic indicators and the now, here's, here's the caveats I don't want to hear because I, I tweeted something about being close to all-time highs yesterday and someone said inflation adjusted and I said no 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 one ever inflation adjusts this S- the S&P 500 or the Dow you can't do that that's just a that's a thing no one ever does if that's your caveat then you're you're splitting hairs here I don't like that okay let's think of some good news here so we're always talking about what's the downside, what's there's a recession and a bear market and rates go higher. Neil Dutta at Renaissance Macro, who I think has been one of the best analysts on this whole period of inflation, says the outlook for 2024 right now is pretty good, actually. Like we could, if, if inflation continues to moderate and we could see decent growth, that's like a good setup. So he says, if I'm right and we have that setup of like decent growth, inflation falling, we get kind of this Goldilocks scenario and the Fed is cutting rates, even as the economy continues to grow at a modest pace, it will be a Nirvana-like situation for equities. While stock prices are up already, many stocks have underperformed the broader market. If the Fed indeed cuts rates next year, it could provide a lift to some of these laggards. So we could see the beyond the Magnificent Seven kind of thing. If we have this situation where a soft landing occurs. What are the odds? The odds? I don't think that's a... I don't think it's that far-fetched that in 2024, equal weight plays catch-up. Spoiler, that might be in my 2024 predictions. I don't know. Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. But I, I don't think it's too unlikely. Okay. That's not contrarian enough for a prediction, I feel like. Not all my predictions are contrarian. Some are very boring follow-ons and some age horribly. For example, in 2022, value beat the shit out of growth, and I thought that trend would continue to 2023. Was I right? No. I was dead wrong. Can't. What was your Bitcoin one, though? You said Bitcoin would double? I got a lot of things right. We'll we'll review that okay. at the end of the year. All right. So I feel like whenever there's a big move in interest rates, you and Josh and I will have a little slack conversation about it. And Josh will say, what, what's happening here? And we'll we'll throw out some ideas. And then we always end with, you know what? It's just positioning. Right? Isn't that where we always kind of fall? That's always our conclusion. It's positioning. 
it's investors buying bonds or selling bonds. And so if you look at, think about the, remember the narratives a month ago in treasuries when they went to 5%? Higher for longer? When did we do that longer. episode? Honestly, was that, was that six weeks ago? But it was, all, but it was also- it became, it became a consensus almost overnight. And it was also the government's finances are out of control and they can't pay their debt and all these things, these narratives. And we talked about the narratives because it was fun and it was interesting. And now all of a sudden, whoosh, right back down. So you went from 3.3% was the low in the 10-year this year. Then we shoot up to 5%. Now we're back to 4.2%. So I think the next like narrative, and it's, it's fun to have these narrative talks, but you really just don't know. The next narrative position is going to be, are rates falling because of a soft landing or are they falling because of slowing economy? And it's going to take a while, I think, to realize who's right about that. But that's the next pundit argument, right? It's exhausting. But isn't that what it's going to be? <sighs> sure. Yeah, probably. It, it, it is just bizarre to me how quickly the bond market is just as confused as everyone else. That's my, my takeaway here. Uh, yeah. All right. So this was interesting. Um, I don't know if this was on your radar, but ARC had just in November, ARC had its best month ever versus the NASDAQ 100? So on a relative basis. Isn't that wild? So the NASDAQ underperformed ARC by 20-something percent. Jeez. So year-to-date basis, ARC's up 56%. Not bad. From the highs in 2021, still down 70%. This thing hasn't bounced nearly as much as you would think. Flows have not returned, though, to ARC. Oh, really? probably, not, probably not too terribly surprising. Well, but it's interesting, though, because remember the flows kept happening during the downfall, so they finally slowed, up, slowed down a little. So this fund peaked at $28 billion in February 2021, which was the height of the meme stock craze. Check and this out. Now, now it has about $9 billion. Look at the flows. In, they peaked in December 2020, and uh, now it's just been in and out, in and out, but pretty wild. Pretty wild. 2021 okay. was a crazy year. I'm I'm working on. A- so the 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 dollar weighted. Not that you can judge an investment manager on this because this is more about investor behavior than anything. The dollar weighted returns in Arc have to be awful, just dreadful, because all the money that went in right before the peak. Horrendous. Um, okay, I meant to talk about this last week, and this topic blew up this week. We we talk often about how intelligent people think that they're. Uh, intellect will transfer over into the stock market. I'm smart. I can pick stocks. I'm Success smart. in one area of life right. means I'll have success in this area. We talk about that a lot. What we don't talk about a lot is the opposite, is people in finance thinking they can do things outside of finance. And David Tepper is right now the poster child for this. So front office sports. Um, Wait, before you get into this, David Tepper is one of the most legendary hedge fund managers and probably doesn't get enough credit for his track record, but like he navigated the post GFC crisis about as well as anyone. When a lot of hedge fund managers did really, really bad. Becky Quick asked Charlie Munger, she said, you've spoken about the importance of psychology and investing. Is there a cognitive bias that you think is particularly significant in the markets today? And Charlie said, there are lots of cognitive biases that are very significant. One is a constant tendency to override your own intelligence and skills in deciding what to do and what not to do. So here's a quote in front office sports. As his last five years as Panthers owner have shown, buying stakes in distressed and undervalued companies isn't the same as running an NFL franchise. Here's another quote. His track record is exactly what I would expect it to be. 
Uh, there's a difference between being an investor and an owner. People like Tepper have made lots of money, but that doesn't necessarily translate into them being good owners. They don't know what it's like to build things. Uh, the founder of a sports consulting firm said, when you run a hedge fund, you are making decisions constantly every day. Being an NFL owner requires a different skill set. Uh, so through 93 games, the Panthers are 30 and 63, which is obviously not great. There, he's just going through coaches like water, which obviously he's fired like four coaches, right? Just destroys co- uh, culture. I think he's been through six already. Uh, and this is interesting. So, given the new requirement, or given the requirement that team purchases be made with at least thirty percent cash, the next new NFL owner will likely continue the trend of owners coming from the financial world. Now, NFL teams don't go on sale very often, but yeah, I just thought this was an interesting. It's also true that there have been people in the financial world who've been successful. The guy who bought the, the box. Uh, Bucks, Lazary? the guy who bought the Red Sox was a former uh, CTA guy, right? Henry. So there have been financial people, but yeah, it, it's true that. So I guess the cut Josh winners, Harris owns the Sixers. Yeah, cut your winners short is uh, works better in hedge funds than it does in coaches, huh? Uh, yeah. So uh, this chart seems sort of out of order, but uh, not sure how it got here. But the last four week change in the AAII bear index is one of the largest drops we've seen in the last 20 years. Um, and uh, this would coincide nicely with the Ben Carlson top. Well, wait, but everyone got all bared up because we had a 10% correction. And, and now we've they, gone the other way. Yeah. I mean, look at this. It's pretty wild. So the last four weeks, you're calling the for a bear top index. I do, I do think the difference between having this, this mini bull market that we're in or whatever it is and having a sustained bull market from current conditions, that seems a lot harder to me. I, I still, if I'm trying to guess the long term, I still think that I'd be a, a little skeptical on that. Having a bull market start from like 3.5% unemployment. I, I, I don't know that that's ever happened before. That'd be my one worry about, I, I think this time can put like an extended like, 10 year long bull market or something seems we had a, we bizarre had, to we, start from we this had a re, We had a reset in stock prices. We had rolling recessions all across the economy that never showed up in the aggregate data. Uh, but you're right. We never had the labor market recession. Weird, weird, weird times we're living through. All right. I know we said we're done with the negativity, but I, this, one, <laughs> this one got me. I just... <laughs> Americans are doom spending. Here's why that's a problem. Re- we got to stop giving so much oxygen to these. <laughs> you know, but I, I like to tell people why they're not... I just li- I like to... Tell people why these are not true. But the more people talk about it, the more people click on it, the more we get. It's like this circular doom loop that we're in. But I, that's, I, that's why I like to point out their, their fallacies. Nearly all Americans, 96%, are concerned about the current state of the economy, according to Intuit Credit Karma. Still more than a quarter are doom spending or spending money despite economic and geopolitical concerns. Even as inflation and high interest rates have squeezed budgets, a record 200 million shoppers turned out between Black Friday and Cyber Monday. That's a new record. Much like doom scrolling, we're seeing people mindlessly shop to soothe concerns about the economy and foreign affairs, which could take a toll on their financial well-being. I Give just, me a f- break. Just stop it already. Although I will say that people are spend spending. They're not doom yeah. spending. Well, I, I, I personally doom spent on a backpack. I got a backpack yesterday. It came in the mail. I forgot that I even bought it. Excuse uh, me, I sir. I- You're almost 40 years old. Stop buying backpacks. Interesting. That's you a New say York that. thing. Listen to this. I told Kobe to get his backpack. And every time I say backpack, he, they look at me like, I, what? I'm like, your book bag. Get your book bag. Oh, they we don't know what backpack backpacks. Is? They don't know what a backpack is. Uh, 
So Wait, I, other I, other word I was thinking that's going out. This this word is dying with the boomers. Here's a word you will never hear once boomers are gone. Supper. Uh, How many people under the age of sixty say supper? Supper is very 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 old. That's a terrible word too, right? This is not quite in the same to the same level of words that are dying, but a word that that people older than sixty say, evening. Ah, that's true. Evening supper. Man. Wow. I got called, where, sir, that, I got called that, sir the other day at the gym. That was that was not great. My backpack came in the mail. Okay. And I bought it because it's like a travel backpack where they've got a nice pouch for your sneakers. And it came and I looked at it and I said, why did I buy this? Why did but I, I buy feel this? like people who walk around Some New York have, have backpacks because you have to like bring all your stuff with you everywhere you go when you go into the city. Well, yeah, I carry my laptop. What am I going to carry? A briefcase? Yeah, that's fair. Speaking of things that are going extinct. All right. Uh, Apollo had another good outlook for the U.S. economy piece with like a million charts. Here's some more. Good, here's some good news. Total employment is now 4.5 million jobs above February 2020 levels. That's kind of crazy to think about. We had that huge drop off where unemployment rate went to 14%. Now we have almost 5 million more jobs than we had back then. Remember the World Bank was calling for like, I think it was the World Bank calling for like 25% unemployment. Yeah, it, it felt like it at the time. See, that's why I'm grading the economy on a curve based on like how bad things were in the pandemic or how bad they could have been. That's not the real world. I have an economy in my head. That's all that matters. <laughs> Economic metaverse. Uh, you want to talk about crypto? Yes. All right. So Bitcoin back to 42,000. It's always funny to me how the big, a lot of the big moves happen on the weekends and at nights. Just when like no one's paying attention. But this... Whatever you call this, a new bull market, a snapback from, what did it get to at the lows? 14 or so, 15? So it's more than doubled. The, the, the Bitcoin bottom is a really great lesson on how markets work. It bottomed uh, when things were- Was Sam Bankman freed basically. Actually, no, it didn't. No, it didn't. The, the, the real, real bottom was in September. So then in September, it bottomed at, what was the low here? Uh, the low was, oh no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. The recent bottom, like the local bottom, because it did, it it got as low as 15,000 in November, 2022. Oh, you're right. That was that was the FB, uh, was that when FTX blew up? It bottomed with him, yes. It bottomed with Sam Bacon. Okay, okay, so it did. So it actually did bottom when the FTX news came out. That's kind of wild. So that's how markets work, when things are at their blackest. But you could have said in the case of crypto, specifically like, all right, it's a wrap. Going to zero. And we kept saying, why is it not at why is it not at five thousand? We couldn't believe with all the bad news that it wasn't even lower. That it just won't die. And I think there here's was another here's another thing. I was telling you this. Uh, this is the way that markets work. I would say certainly not that this is like super unique to Bitcoin. But the other day I said to you, it's like, and I was sort of I said this tongue in cheek. I was laughing. I was like, "Man, I don't know. I don't own enough Bitcoin." <laughs> and the truth is, I probably own way too much of it. But but that's how your brain behaves, right? Like, I feel like the, crypto the brain, even the more so is, than the stock market. Crypto is different than the stock market in this way. It's, is that when it's going up, you think, "Yes, I, I need more," and when it's going down, I think, "Why do I have any of this?" <laughs> way more than the stock. So market. I don't know if this is like recency bias or hindsight bias or whatever the hell you call it, but it does seem like it's it's not unique to crypto, but it is especially. 
the, in crypto. This move in crypto, though, if it continues and we get to like 50,000 and there's all these pieces about, hey, crypto back above 50, people are just going to hate this so, so much. Because there are, there are a lot of people. There were so many grave dancing and people. There's a lot of just people like, who. This is it. It's done. There are people who don't get crypto, who don't like crypto, which is probably a lot of people, most people. But then there are people whose like identity is tied to crypto failing. And yes. for those poor they souls. really want it. And I, like, I still don't quite get it, get it. To me, it's still it's a call option. And that's always been my case. I just think it's funny that crypto got crushed when inflation spiked and rates went up. And then it's rallying now that inflation is falling and rates are falling. And it's like, eh, we'll just push those other macro. Like, the, I think crypto people should just completely disavow macro for good and just not bring it up to, uh, to any of their points because obviously that narrative failed. Well, the crypto na- the crypto macro takes were just horrendous. I mean, Jack Dorsey is a great example of this. He said hyperinflation is coming. He's a big crypto guy. And the crypto macro takes are, they're... Not all, but they feel sort of anti-American and not all. I'm playing with a broad brush, yeah, but it's very I would easy. Just, I would focus more on the technology and the macro. Just leave the macro alone. Like You don't need just to have the macro. The people whose identities are tied to hating crypto, I kind of sympathize. But you know what I did instead? I bought crypto right. to protect myself, to insulate myself in the in the off chance that this thing goes to, that this thing went to $100,000. I think I would have, sponta- if I didn't own it, I would have spontaneously combusted. That's the reason I bought it in the first place too, because I was getting so fed up with beating my head against the wall going, I don't get this. I don't get this. Oh, well. So yeah, it feels like a call option. Uh, NFTs are back, I guess, or maybe, I don't, I don't follow the NFT market too closely, but pudgy penguins were a big- Wait a minute, what, sir. You did follow it closely for like a month. Though. I did. I did. I did. No, no, no. I was super interested in in, in NFTs, uh, in what w- what was happening at the time. Just a wild, wild scene. Can we can we just say that literally everything is tied to the price of Bitcoin? Like Coinbase got crushed. Now Bitcoin's going up. Coinbase is going up. Bitcoin goes up. NFT price. Like everything is just tied to Bitcoin. That's it. So, I, I don't think it's like shocking that crypto is back. Uh, I mean, it wasn't one of my predictions of twenty twenty three that it would double. So I'm not shock shocked. I am surprised that NFTs are rocking again. Like, are we back in? Are we back in twenty one? We're doing this again. Cycles move faster these days. <laughs> I, I thought I thought interest rates ruled everything around us. Isn't it just if crypto prices are higher, people are finally able to sell some of these things, so you get more activity? Because it was just dormant forever. Is that how it works? I don't know. A lot of people would say, "Hey, dummies, this is all money laundering." Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I don't. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know, but never uh, a dull moment. Never right. a dull moment. I want to do some more myth busting here. Someone sent me a bunch of people sent me this because we've been talking for recent weeks how housing prices have come back to all time highs, and uh, like five people sent us this and said, "Hey, wait a minute, I see this this chart here from this Kobayashi letter." I it's it's the guy from Usual Suspects, I think. New home prices just crashed by the largest amount on record, down 18% over the last year. The biggest decline going back to 1965. Chris just walks in here. I've, I've clearly got a microphone in front of my face. He's like, are you recording? <laughs> no, I'm on, I'm on a Zoom. Unbelievable, this guy. All right. Uh, new home prices crashed by the largest amount on record, down 18% of the last year. The biggest decline since 1965. Even worse, even in the worst month of the 2008 financial crisis, biggest decline was 15%. So they talk about how this is bad. And you look at the, the chart here and it makes this look bad. People are going, wait a minute, how are new home prices down 18% if home prices are at all-time highs? This makes no sense because there's so many more new homes being built, right? Well, Logan Modishami, good friend of the show, set these people straight. 
the reason the median housing price for new homes is being is down is because they're building smaller homes. This is actually a good thing, <laughs> right? That's great. Like, this is not like prices crashing. It's they're f- more people want to build new homes because that's kind of the only game in town and builders are buying down mortgage rates. And so they're actually building smaller homes. They're building like three and $400,000 houses now instead of five and $600,000 houses. So the median price of new homes sold has actually fallen. This is a good thing. This is good news for people who've wanted smaller starter-ish homes. So not, See, the, we, not we, the end of the world. We need people like Logan to come in here with data and set these people straight. I love it. Well and done. He loves, Lo, Logan loves dunking on Doomers more than I do. I he love does. dunking on Doomers. He loves it more than anything. He's the LeBron James of dunking right, on last Doomers. Last week, I talked about why don't more people leave these high like places like New York? Because their inflation, their cost of living would immediately get better. And You uh, live where you live. I know, but I'm saying if people can't survive financially in a high cost of living area, don't you think some of them have to be thinking, I got to get out of here to a place that's more them, affordable? And, some, and some, of, some of them are. So there are. So the, the 10 housing market uh, places with the biggest outflows, San Francisco, New York, Los Angeles, and D.C. And they're going to Sacramento, Miami, Las Vegas, and Salisbury, Maryland. So this is, this is quite a lot of people. 25,000 people left New York. Uh, but how many people live in New York? Seven million. Yeah, it's not right. that. And you probably have more coming in, I guess. This is uh, this is in the net outflow. So no, this net is not. People it's coming not. in. Yeah. But still, I, I, I'm surprised that like you won't be seeing more of this in years ahead. All right. I have two dumb surveys this week. The percentage of, this is from Morning Consult, the percentage, share of consumers who said they would prefer that personal incomes go up or prices go down. 37% want their personal income to go up. 63% want prices to go down. Which part of this is dumb? The 63%. You'd rather see, <laughs> I, you don't want, you'd rather see prices go down than your income go up? Are these people Man, mental? They're just, they're just being honest. That's, that's dumb. You, would, you don't want your income to go up? This is like the relative heads being broken thing. All right, here's another one. This is from CNBC. 60% of investors with $1 million or more of investable assets said they are more likely upper middle class, according to a recent Ameriprise survey. Of those making more than $175,000 a year, roughly of the top 10% of tax filers, one quarter said they're either very poor, poor, or getting by, but things are tight. Even the share of people making $500,000 to $1 million said the same. Despite their high net worth, just 44% of all millionaires felt very comfortable, according to Edelman Financial Engines. So we, we've talked about this a couple weeks ago. I think 12% of American households are millionaires by net worth, but that includes a house. So to have a million dollars in investable assets, I'm guessing that's 3% of the population maybe? I'm going to say something that's, that people are going to get angry at, but it's the truth. Have at it. Making, having money is expensive. And what, <laughs> I'm not saying that you should feel bad in any way, shape, or form. Cry me a river. That's not what I'm saying. The reality is that when people make more money, they spend more money. It's like how you fit. What's the Seinfeld joke about the, the, the newspaper every day? It's incredible how it all fits on the same page. All the news fits exactly on those eight pages of the news or whatever. Yeah. Okay. Same thing with money. Same thing with income. The goalpost move, your lifestyle expands. Like that is just the way the world works. But I just So to... that's, that, explains, that explains why people who make more money don't feel like they're getting ahead. But don't tell me you're upper middle class then. You're upper, upper class at that point. If you have a million dollars in investable assets. Fair. I'm not, I'm not saying that, that it's right. I'm just saying that's how people feel. 
That's how people feel. And this is this is the habit thing. And it, maybe this is part of it too. So this is interesting. This is from Twitter from Rico. No one fully appreciates how volatile income is. People get raises, they become unemployed or disabled, they marry, divorce, they retire, they appear temporarily rich from an asset value, sale, etc. Nearly half of this year's top 1% will not be in next year's top 1%. Yeah. It's kind but of then a how common number. how common is it for people to overextend themselves? And I'm not talking about uh, athletes and celebrities, which happens all the time. You say, how the f*** is that possible? How regular is that people. possible? But it happens with regular people that are making good money. My, my favorite- It happens my all favorite, the time. It's very common. One of common. my favorite studies is they studied people in Canada who won the lottery and their neighbors were more likely to go bankrupt than the regular person because they saw these other people spending money. I do think- Yeah, and then you make money and you hang out with people who make money and then you try and keep up with them. I mean, this is- Keeping up with the Joneses is not a new phenomenon. Yeah, but this is another thing I think social media has taken to a new level. The Joneses used to be the people on your block or in your town. Now the Joneses is everyone. What social media has done to this is, you're right, the, the Joneses are everywhere. And articles like this, you never had articles like this back in the day. And it triggers people. What I just said, even though, again, I'm not saying these people deserve sympathy. That's not what I'm saying. But articles like this piss people off. It's like, right. remember that remember that spreadsheet uh I forget what the numbers were. People with $4 million have no savings. Well, it's like, yeah, you make $4 million, you spend, you invest, and you save, and there's no more savings. That's how it works. You spend everything is, or you invest everything. But to your point, people get mad at a story like this, and then if they ever get a million dollars, then they act exactly the same way. Of course. Right? Of course. Okay, here, here's, here's where keeping up with the Joneses has gone wrong for people's personal finances. This is from uh, Charter. America's love of trucks has only grown in recent years. It shows uh, the sh share of purchases. And in the 1970s, it was like 80% of cars were sedans or wagons. That was the biggest one. Now that's under we spoke about We spoke about wagons last week. Oh, speaking of, speaking of, I have a follow-up on your parents' van. Uh, you know, they never did find the Zodiac killer. <laughs> that one finally came to you a week later. <laughs> Not bad. I mean, that, that is very, I still I still need answers. I, I need more information. It was like a gray conversion van, honestly. It should have just had a sign that said candy coming here. Was your dad a painter? No, of course not. My dad does less manual labor than I ever did. So sedans and wagons are another 26 from 80, and trucks and SUVs were, I don't know, less than 10% up until the 90s and now 45%. Which, the funny thing to me is, Everyone needs like the huge suburban and Tahoe and stuff this year. And I'm just telling you, please keep holding out. Okay. I know you wanted to get one. Who, but, me? Yeah. But well, people I had- did, Hang on. I did the prudent thing. The, it's just, it's just, it's, it's ludicrously expensive. Yeah. But people back in the day had more kids than people have now. And yet we think we need bigger cars and trucks now than we needed back then. That's the funny thing is that- my parents both come from families of five kids. And do you think they had a suburban to haul the kids around and stuff? No way. I don't, they made it work with like one car between the whole family somehow. It's we, 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 were, we went out to dinner on Saturday night and Friday night. And by the way, I've told Robin, that's too much. I, I'm out on Friday dinners. Oh, I am the same way. I do not like plans on Fridays at all. No, it's it's too much. But then she's like, well, you, what, you get to go out just because you got on Thursday it means we can't go out on Friday? And she's got a fair point there. That's a fair rebuttal, actually. Robin, a fair re score one for you. It's a fair rebuttal. Uh, but the reason I bring that up is because we took an Uber home. There were six of us, so I got the Premier one, which was uh, like the Tahoe XL. Ooh, Premier, fancy guy. 
Well, there was there were six people. I wasn't being fancy, but right. you needed a six seater for six people. My God, is that a humongous car? Massive, right? I I get the appeal. It's very it's very nice. It's like driving a nice. pontoon down the road. It's very nice. Very spacious. All right, recommendations. I will. You know what? You go first, Ben. No, no, no. I'm sorry. Sorry. Before we get there, uh, real quick, Ben. I just want to talk about your take on Twitter. Okay. Um, perfect number of perfect number of donuts. Two. Perfect number of beers. Three. Perfect slong length. Three and a half minutes. Perfect number of lifting reps. Eight. I don't know why, but but it's true. Perfect movie length. One hour and forty five minutes. Perfect number of TV episodes per season. Six only British shows do this. I have to say, 10 out of 10. This is a perfect take, especially the TV episodes per season. I love the only six episode shows that I could think of uh, was Bodyguard, which is a British show. Yep. And um, was, was uh, what was the show in Pennsylvania with Hugh Grant and- uh, Oh yeah, Nicole Kidman one. Yeah. Not Nicole, yeah, oh, Nicole Kidman. And uh, um, not Maisel, what the heck? What was the name of that show? I can't remember now either. But, but it, I think that was a six-episode miniseries. So I started right. watching the I started watching the Fall of the House of Usher or whatever, and I mean it should have been a four-episode show. Maybe I, I gave up because it's like it's, it's too I, much. I gave up. I gave up too. I, I I think I gave it through four, and then Robin finished it. But you're right; it's too much. It's the TV six episodes. It's, it's perfect. Um, good morning, Michael and Ben. As a spine physician, I would like to comment on the important topic of airplane seat reclining. First of all, the seats are made to recline, which means it's okay to recline them. Secondly, reclining the seat decreases the pressure on your disc, which is under a lot of stress while seated and bouncing up and down on airplanes or cars. I see a lot of people with disc herniations after long air travel. Do yourselves a favor and recline your airplane seat. I'm talking to you, Michael. All right. So if you want to recline your airline seat, you need a doctor's note then. Well, I, I'm going to turn around. That, I mean, this this person has one more. I'm staunchly anti-reclining, so I think it's just impolite. But, you know, if we're talking... We're talking medical uh, health here. Um, Dr. Bob says it's okay. One more airplane email. I write this while we experience some rough air on a cross-country flight home, and I'm reminded to send my thanks your way because I've taken to listening to the podcast during turbulence to calm my irrational nerves. It gets me out of my own head, and you guys are just easy to listen to. Finally, for anyone else who gets a little anxious, I found the turbulence forecast on this website. It's turbly.com, T-U-R-B-L-I.com, to be extremely accurate. And knowing ahead of time allows me to prepare mentally. The site is called Turbo. So I said this on a show a couple. I said this on a show a couple months ago. I like most everybody else don't like turbulence. I mean, who's a fan of it? That'd be weird. You know what I like? I like turbulence. Uh, planes don't crash from turbulence. True, it happens all the time, right? What planes crash from turbulence? No, I'm saying turbulence happens all the time. Uh, it happens all the time. It's terrible. One one more thing on on the inbox. We get a ton of emails every week. And it's one of my favorite things to come out of this podcast is the way that people open themselves up to us. And Sean over here, I'm looking right at him, uh, helps us with the inbox and helps us with everything else. And has been indispensable. Just what a great, what a great hire. What a great employee. True. Sean is our left tackle. Sean is our left tackle. However, we gave him access to the inbox and we're, we're revoking his access. Not because Sean did anything wrong, but when you, the listener, sends us a personal email, I want to send you a personal response. Uh, so just know that if you had emailed us in the past couple of weeks and you sort of felt like you got a impersonal response, that's Sean's fault. 
but it's but you know whose fault? It's it's my fault for letting that happen. So rest assured, if you come to us with a personal email, you'll get a personal response. If you want to write to Michael about all his horror flicks, have at it. He'll write you back. All right, recommendations. Um, I don't know if Wonka's getting good reviews or not, but this is interesting. Hugh Grant plays an Oompa Loompa. Did, did you see the Johnny Depp one? Why do they have to keep trying no. to remake this stuff? It was awful. I had no interest. No yeah. interest. No interest. So I, I saw- not, I'm sure um, my kids will probably want to see this, but I have no interest in it. No interest. I saw on Sunday night at 820. I haven't been to the theater in a long time. And you know what? I said, it's time. Get off of your ass. Go to the theater. I saw Godzilla minus one. And I have said over the past couple of weeks, I was talking a lot about Godzilla, that I'm not even a fan of the franchise, which I know sounds weird considering that I'm endorsing the show on Apple, Monarch, Legacy of Monsters, which is quite good. And then I also went to see Godzilla minus one. And I'll get to Godzilla minus one in a second. The Hollywood versions of the Godzilla movies are trash, in my opinion. And they're very, they're just not good. Uh, Kobe is excited for Godzilla X King Kong. Is it N King Kong? I saw the trailer for that movie. It looks horrendous. Did you see the trailer yet? Yeah. There's looks too awful. much Godzilla content going on right now. Looks awful. Ne- nevertheless, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring Kobe to the My son will love that movie. Yeah, I'm going to bring Kobe to, to see it because he's into it. Okay, so I saw Godzilla Minus One. The reason why I wanted to see it was because it's not the Hollywood version. It's, it's Japanese, and it's in subtitles. So before I get to the review of the movie, these were the coming attractions, which speaks to the times. It was a, an independent film. Then it was uh, Planet of the Apes. Another one? <laughs> then it was Ghostbusters, which actually looks good because we've got the original cast back. And then it was uh, uh, Blumhouse. And that just those four trailers, that, that's the world that we live in. An indie, a franchise, a franchise, and a Blumhouse horror movie. It's the game's an indie. And I don't hate it. Uh, okay, so I was thinking about this movie as I watch this. And are foreign films better than domestic films? Or do I think they're better because they're in subtitles and I have to pay more attention to them and it has my full attention? You know what I always wonder? Are, are these people good actors? Because I can't tell because they're talking a different language. Are they really good actors or not? That's a great point. So this is the 37th Japanese Godzilla film. And guess what? This movie was awesome. Like, it was more about like the psychological horrors of war than it was about Godzilla. But the monster scenes itself were, I mean, this this was easily the best Godzilla movie I've ever seen. Easily. It was made on a, fair, it was made on a $15 million budget, which blew my face. And it was one of the better movies I've seen all year. It was f-ing awesome. It was really, really okay. good. Shockingly good. Godzilla minus one. Credit to uh, the Japanese for making an incredible film. Okay. Any other ones? Horror flicks this week? Uh, any other horror films? I did see one that I listed a recommend that I didn't care for, so I'm not going to... I'm not going to shout it out, but somebody said, uh, somebody did email us. Since you were both pondering this on the last episode, I thought I would share something I recall reading in high school, a very short essay from Stephen King on why we watch horror movies. I hope you find it useful. We'll link to the show notes, of course, but I just wanted to grab this one, this one bit that I thought was interesting. From Stephen King, the mythic horror movie, like the sick joke, has a dirty job to do. It deliberately appeals to all that is worse than us. It is morbidly, it is morbidity unchained, our most base instincts let free, our nastiest fantasies realized. And it all happens, fittingly enough, in the dark. For those reasons, good liberals often shy away from horror films. For myself, I like to see the most aggressive of them. Dawn of the Dead, for instance, as lifting a trapdoor in the civilized forebrain and throwing a basket of raw meat to the hungry alligators swimming around in that subterranean river beneath. Why bother? Because it keeps them from getting out, man. 
It keeps him down there and me up here. It was Lennon and McCarthy who said that all you need is love. And I would agree with that as long as you keep the Gators fed. This is a very see, good essay. I can see that. What do you uh, got? I'm in on the new Fargo show. The That's one great. last season I thought was awful. I think they've done like five of these seasons now. The last one with Chris Rock was just not good at all. I didn't even finish it. This one is, I thought, started off great. It felt like the movie. I rewatched Black Swan on Netflix. Have you ever seen this movie? It's a Darren Aronofsky movie. You, you never saw Portman. it? No, well, I you have. never saw it? I have. Oh. I just haven't seen it since it first came out. I saw it in the theater. This was, I mean, this was, this was a tough watch. A great, it's kind good of movie. a deranged movie, but it, it's, deranged. Almost, it, it's almost like a horror movie in some ways. But, I mean, it's like psychological thriller slash horror. But it's a that's a good movie. I kind of forgot that's a that's a really good movie. A little out there, obviously. But really good, really good. I like that one. Natalie Portman and um, Mila Kunis, Sarah Marshall, the Mila Kunis, not Sarah Marshall, but yeah, Mila Kunis. All right, all right. Where should, uh, where should people email us so we can respond to them? People should email us at animalspiritofthecompoundnews.com. Personal emails, personal responses. That's what we're all about here. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. <laughs>